0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Trinity Assembly Online. It's April, and uh, I'm glad that you're able to join us. My name is David, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Trinity. And we are in the third week of our series, The Final Hours, where we're looking at the end of the life of Jesus Christ. Um, I have three three little girls, uh, 11, 9, and 6. And one of the things I've learned about kids is that the younger they are, the more honest and unfiltered they are. As they get older, they begin to learn social etiquette. They begin to learn what to say and what not to say. But when they're little, they just say anything they want. And my youngest one, Maddie, who is six years old, she's still kind of at that stage where she just says whatever she wants. And, and um, her love for, for me feels very up and down depending on what's happening and what I've done for her recently. If I've done something really that she's excited about, she can't stop saying how much she loves me. I love you, Daddy. I love you, Daddy. You're the best. But then if I do something she's not happy about, it changes dramatically to I don't like you, get away from me, and a lot of that sort of stuff. And so a lot of, a lot of my time spent around Maddie is enduring the emotional roller coaster of acceptance and rejection back and forth from a 6-year-old. And this morning when we look at the final moments of Jesus' life, what we're going to see is that Jesus is rejected 3 times in this story, and he's accepted three times. So he's rejected three times, and he's accepted three times. And of course, throughout all of history, Jesus is always one or the other by every person, either accepted or rejected. So we're going to look this morning at first the three ways that Jesus is rejected. We're in Mark chapter 14 and 15, the three ways that he's rejected, and then the three ways that he is accepted. First off, he is rejected by the Sanhedrin, The Sanhedrin was the supreme uh, Jewish legislative and judicial council. They were the prosecutor, jury, judge, the whole deal. There are 71 members in the Sanhedrin. They are made up of former high priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, doctors of the law, representatives of the most prominent families, and the high priest. And Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. We talked about the Garden of Gethsemane last week. And he's taken to this trial in the middle of the night. And this trial was a through and through farce. And it's actually at times a comedic disaster. If you read this passage in Mark fourteen fifty five to 62 the chief priests and the whole council, they're trying to put together this testimony so that they can um, have Jesus convicted of a crime and be put to death. But they can't find people who will speak against Jesus, and the ones who will speak, their testimony does not agree. And so it gets to the point where they can't actually put together a strong enough case against him. And Jesus, in verse 62, when they ask him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And with those words, Jesus indicts himself. And the travesty of a trial ends with Caiaphas, the high priest, calling out blasphemy, tearing his robe, spitting on him, and hitting him. The Sanhedrin have rejected Jesus. Now their problem with him was that he was a threat to their power. They had power over the Jewish people. They had influence and control, even uh, to some extent with Rome. And Jesus was a threat to that power. He also did not fit their expectations of a Messiah. They, they didn't expect someone like him to come and be the Messiah. They were looking for a political power or a, or a, a military strong leader. Also, Jesus was exposing their sin and showing them to be fraud. So they had these problems with Jesus, which, by the way, uh, still the problems that people have with Jesus tend to fit into one of these categories. He's a threat to their power. He doesn't fit their expectations, or he's exposing things about themselves that they'd rather ignore. And even after all this, the religious leaders, even though they've been able to um, convict him, so to speak, they still have a problem. Jesus claiming to be Messiah was a religious issue. And of no interest to the Roman state. And so the Romans wouldn't, uh, the Jewish people could not uh, execute a criminal. The Romans alone had the power to do that. And what Jesus was doing wasn't a political crime. So what they did was they charged Jesus with claiming to be king, which was a terrible offense in Roman eyes, uh, treason, treason, basically. So in Mark 15, verse 1, it says, As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes in the whole council. And they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. The Sanhedrin brought Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate, early in the morning. Why? Because, again, they weren't allowed to convict criminals at night, although that's what they did. But they also couldn't sentence him to death, so they needed the, Roman, the Romans to do so. And so Jesus ends up in front of Pilate, this Roman governor, in Mark 15. And what we see here is that he's rejected by Pilate. History tells us some things about Pontius Pilate. He was a man who lusted for celebrity and status. He put his career before everything, even people in principle. Here's some things we know that he did from history. He insulted the Jewish people by having his soldiers bring flags bearing images of Caesar into Jerusalem, which almost caused an open rebellion. Another time, he raided the sacred treasury of the temple. It was a treasury that was only supposed to be used for service to God, and he took stuff out of there to pay for the building of an aqueduct. Anyone who objected was beaten by plainclothes soldiers. And ultimately, Pontius Pilate lost his job when he ordered his cavalry to attack Samaritans who were assembled at Mount Gerizim in a religious quest. And, And history tells us that Pontius Pilate's life just spiraled to the point where he ended his own life. He had a history of making bad decisions. He had been warned repeatedly by Rome about his heavy handedness. And so when the Jewish people came to him with this threat of an insurrection, this man named Jesus who was causing a, uh, um, a riot to, to begin, he wanted to, he wanted to end it because it wouldn't look good on his record. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And so he, first thing he does is he passes him off to Herod, who was the ruler in Galilee. But then Herod sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate questions him, and he sees what this is, that Jesus is no uh, revolutionary. He, he's a victim of envy. Um, he even told the Jewish leaders, I don't find anything wrong with Jesus. And then Pilate had what he thought was a great idea. There was a custom of the, at the Passover time of granting amnesty to a prisoner of the Jewish people's choice. And he had in his custody a notorious criminal named Barabbas, who was a murderer and a bandit. And he thought, I'll give the crowd a choice. Of course they're going to grant amnesty to Jesus. He's not done anything wrong. Barabbas is a murderer and an insurrectionist and abandoned. But to his surprise, that didn't happen. And we see the third group that rejects Jesus. The Sanhedrin, Pilate, and now the crowd. The chief priests have already stirred up this crowd. They've probably paid them off. And so when Pilate goes to the crowd, you have Jesus or Barabbas. Who do you want to be free? The crowd yells out, give us Barabbas. Pilate says, so what should I do with Jesus? And the crowd says, crucify him. Pilate says, why? What evil has he done? And the crowd continues to yell, crucify him. And verse 15 says that Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, which means whipped and beat him, he delivered him to be crucified. And I want to read to you Mark 15, verses 16 to 27. This is the story of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and I want us to read it in its entirety. It says, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And when they crucified two robbers, or, and with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. There's a man named Josephus who was probably the most famous first century historian. And he describes this scene. He says that the flagellum, which was the whip that they whipped Jesus with, these straps of leather that had um, glass and metal shards in it that they would whip across his back and then drag across his back, the flagellum left Jesus with bone and cartilage showing. His brow wore the mocking crown of thorns, each thorn representing the curse of sin extended to nature, a faded purple robe, crimson with blood, hung dripping from his shoulders. And then Jesus was placed in the center of a company of four Roman soldiers, and then the patibulum, which was the crossbeam of the cross, which weighed anywhere from 100 to 150 pounds, was placed upon his torn shoulders. And as Jesus stumbled along the route to the cross or to the place of the crucifixion, uh, an officer, a Roman officer, walked in front of him carrying a a wooden placard whitened with chalk and bearing the darkened inscription of Jesus' crime that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. Jesus would have been led on the longest route possible through the city so so that proper fear would be bestowed upon everyone who saw him. Crucifixion was the lowest form of degradation. Cultured Gentiles wouldn't even mention the word cross, and within a few hundred years, crucifixion was outlawed as a form of execution, nails driven through the wrists and one nail through both feet. Death was slow and painful. The March 21, 1986 issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association carries the most complete medical review of Christ's crucifixion ever published in a medical journal. In it, the authors detail the pain endured by the weight of the body hanging from the nails that damaged the medial nerves and tear at the tarsals, the respiratory torture, the cramping, and the plural effusions, concluding this, death by crucifixion was in every sense of the word excruciating. So Jesus has been rejected by the Jewish religious establishment, by Roman politicians, by a riled up crowd, and now even his closest friends are nowhere to be found. In fact, All that's around him is mockers, thieves, and haters. In Matthew 27, we hear them yelling out, he saved others he can't even save himself. Jesus rejected. And At this point in the story, Jesus finds acceptance from two unexpected sources, a thief and a soldier. He's accepted by a thief. We have to look at Luke for this story. But in Luke, we see that there's two thieves crucified on either side of Jesus. And one of them uh, rails against Jesus and is angry with him and is mocking him and joining in with the crowd. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And he's cursing Christ. But the other one is very different. The other one says, don't you fear God? And he says to Jesus in Luke twenty-three forty-two, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to the thief, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This scene is so moving because even as Jesus is dying, he knows why he's dying. He's dying to save people like this thief. And what we have in this moment is the microcosm of the response of all people throughout time to Jesus, one who rejects and one who accepts. Now, this thief accepting Jesus, it causes us to notice two things. We can't miss this. Number one, there's no such thing as a lost cause. Imagine the thief waking up that morning Knowing that he was going to be crucified, thinking, This is it. I've wasted my life. There's no hope. I've hurt so many people. No one will be there for me. And there's only one thing left to do is die. And then there's Jesus. And this reminds us that there's no such thing. It's not too late for you, it's not too late for your loved ones. Jesus will love us and pursue us until our final breath. There's no such thing as a lost cause. But the second thing that really I think we have to see in this moment is that there's no such thing as working your way in. Jesus says to this thief, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Hold on. The thief has no time to right his wrongs, no time to rehabilitate himself, no time to contribute to society, no time to prove his worth, no time to earn his way in. And this is the central message of the gospel, that there's no working your way in. One of the last things Jesus said on the cross is, it is finished. And this means that he finished his mission. Not that he was finished by his enemies, but that he finished his mission. In other words, he's saying, it has been and it will forever be finished which interestingly enough is the same word that the high priest would say that same day after all the lambs had been slaughtered in the temple for the passover feast they would say it is finished and jesus here the true and better the greater passover lamb who sacrificed on our behalf he says it is finished what does this mean it means we don't save ourselves through our works we're saved by faith in jesus christ alone there's no such thing as a lost cause and there's no such thing as working your way in the gospel is not, here's how you achieve salvation, it's here's how you receive salvation. Jesus is also accepted by a centurion. In Mark fifteen thirty three, it says, when the sixth hour had come, which was noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabagathni, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' death is dramatically emphasized by the darkness that engulfed the cross. The sixth hour was noon. The sun was at its highest point, and everything became dark. Why darkness? Well, to begin with, according to the Old Testament prophet Amos, it's a sign of mourning, but also darkness signifies the curse of God. And this darkness takes us to the very center of what was happening. For in those three dark hours, sin was poured out upon Christ's soul, our sin, my sin, your sin, until according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, he became our sin, mine, yours, everyone's. One author says it this way, because Jesus became sin for us, he had to undergo the cosmic trauma of separation from God who is light, and in him is no darkness at all. In the dark of the cross's night, Jesus was alone. His separation was not just felt, it was real. The ontological unity of the Trinity was not broken because God doesn't change, but the separation of the Son from the Father and the Spirit was fact. This was possible because of the authenticity of the Incarnation. God's holy nature demanded separation as the son became sin. And in verse 37, it says that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his his last, and two things happened. The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, and then the centurion, who stood by the side of the cross, and he was facing him, when he saw the way in which Jesus breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This centurion had been in charge of the execution of Jesus Christ. He had seen everything. He would seen the whippings. He'd seen Jesus be beaten to a pulp. He had seen the Via Dolorosa, the the pathway that Jesus walked to Calvary. He had supervised Jesus' nailing of his hands to the cross and his feet to the cross. He had seen Jesus' ministry to those who were crucified. Next to him, the thief. He'd seen Jesus' words to John and his mother. He had seen the midday darkness come. He had stood next to Jesus uh, and stood there to see this execution through. And then finally, he sees Jesus' explosive, triumphant death And he proclaims, truly, this was the Son of God. And what we learn here is that Jesus' death, when it's carefully considered, reveals who he was and is. And what do we see when we look at Jesus' death? We see two seemingly contradictory truths. Number one, Jesus is just like us. He had the full human experience all the way. He faced the final enemy of death, just like you and I will someday. Jesus is just like us. But secondly, Jesus is nothing like us. Look at how he died. Innocent. Without sin, and praying for his enemies. And it was so moving and so gripping to the centurion that he accepted Jesus in that moment. He was accepted by a thief. He was accepted by a soldier. But then lastly, and this is the one that matters most, Jesus was accepted by God, by the Father. In verse 38, it said that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This curtain separated uh, the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And the high priest could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. But the the, the, the curtain being torn from top to bottom symbolized that now the way into the presence of God is wide open for all who trust in Jesus. And the fact that the curtain was torn from top to bottom signifies that God did this. No man could do this. Only God could make a way for us to have a right relationship with himself. The Father accepted the life and death of the Son on your behalf. Jesus died as you, he died for you, and his sacrifice is enough. The Gospel tells us that what God requires, he provided for us in the person and work. Of Jesus Christ and what that means is that if you place your faith and trust fully and solely in Jesus that when the father looks at you he sees you not as a cleaned up version of yourself not as a self-improved version of yourself not as a new and better version of yourself he sees you as if you lived the life that Jesus lived his perfect record becomes yours and your sinful record became his on the cross it's the great substitution where God poured out his justice upon his son and his mercy on us. And what that means is that you and I can be accepted and not rejected by God, not because of your work but because of Jesus' work. And if that's true, then we can enter into rest, real rest knowing that we've been accepted by the Father based on the undeserved unchanging, sufficient work of the Son. This morning we want you to know that there are people that are ready to pray for you. Maybe you want to pray a prayer of placing your faith and trust in Jesus. Please email us at info at trinityagchurch.org, info at trinityagchurch.org. Send us your name and your phone number. And one of our church leaders, one of our pastors, and one of our uh, elders, one of our deacons will call you and pray with you over the phone. And we're going to have you do that in just a moment. But before we finish this morning's service, I wanted to lead us in singing one of my favorite hymns. It's a hymn that I think really summarizes everything we've been talking about this morning. It's called, How Deep the Father's Love. And as you sing along with me and think about the words of this hymn, consider the truth, how much God loves us, and what Jesus went through, rejected by many, but accepted by many. And the choice before us this morning is will I reject him or will I accept him? Let's sing this song together. You don't want to do like a beat out after that? No? Um, okay, let's, let's do a quick one then. Thank you again for being with us this morning. We're praying for you. We want you to know that our church is here to serve our community during this time. If you have any needs, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Uh, We're praying that you guys have a blessed week. Thanks so much for joining us.